Ever wonder why luxury hotel mattresses are so dreamy? It's because those hybrid mattresses combine both comfort and support to make you feel like you're sleeping on a cloud. With Dream Cloud, you can get a luxury mattress made with premium materials at half the price of traditional hybrid mattresses. Dream Cloud combines the perfect blend of comfy memory foam and supportive springs. Comfortable sleep is about more than just the mattress you sleep on. And that's why every Dream Cloud also comes with $399 in accessories. Plus get $200 off a 365-night home trial, free shipping and returns, and a forever warranty. Go to dreamcloudsleep.com today. Hey, everyone. Um, Thanks for listening to Get Out of Rap. Today, I'm with David Harrison, who is Director of Customer at Atlanta Group, and this is episode 88. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Morning, Martin. Yeah, very, very good. Excited to be here with you. (laughs) <laughs> pardon say that again <laughs> excited to be here with you as you know you know I'm, I, we were just saying off air we? I'm, one of, I'm one of the biggest fans of get out of rap i reckon i've mate it's it's great to hear just kind of um whether it was doing your patio or down at the gym and just talking about the community that's um evolved and we we were trying to cut it use the use the podcast to figure out the timeline of when we first started um talking and it was in 2019. I know time's a bit weird at the moment, isn't it? But um, Dave presented uh, an award-winning um, nomination at the European Contact Centre and Customer Service Awards that absolutely stood out. And I hope we'll touch upon that because it's been we've been talking about doing this um, episode for a long, long time. So I'm really, really pleased you're you're, you're here. Yeah, cheers. And, and and the content of that award entry has, 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 has stayed with me. I know it stayed with the GS where I was formerly, actually. Um, I'm still in contact with a lot of those folks. And, um, and a lot of people that worked for me went on to do bigger jobs in other organisations using the methodology and the, the thought process behind that, essentially that award entry that got the results that it got. And then I'm still trying to do it today with, with Atlanta, and I, and I absolutely love it. I think it's a winning formula. and um, I love to share it. I, love to share. I think it makes a difference to can make a difference to people's lives if you, if you, if you commit yourself to it. And that and I've got that same feeling I had when we were judges listening to this um, presentation, which was genuine goosebumps. Because when you have somebody that says, "I've found something. We've put something together that works. It's brilliant, and we want to share it." that's right up my street that's I, I love that because it's not about competition it's about collaboration and trying to make people better I've got more power to you and we're going to go we'll, we'll go through that for for sure but um let's start with your kind of career where did this all, where did it all start for you well my first job in contact center actually was when I was at, at, so I did school obviously I went then I went to college and did A-levels, uh, business and uh, journalism, actually. And then I went straight into work in a contact centre for Hotpoint and Creed. Really? The white goods guys, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was in their contracts department and then their spares department. And then they let me go. I, I've sort of, and I haven't got rid of this problem a lot. Or I, I'm late for a lot of things. And I always had to catch the bus. And the times didn't quite marry up. So when it came to letting some people go, I was first on the list. For this guy who just knew me for being late, um, so, they, <laughs> so they let me. So they let me go. Yeah, so they let me go. Is the is the short story, and then I went to work at Alton Towers, and that was one of the best jobs I've, I've ever had. I worked on Merry England games, you know, where you have to throw the ball at the at the bottles and knock them off the pedestal, and uh, yeah, and that's or get the ring on the bottle, that sort of stuff. I did those for a season, and it was absolutely incredible there mantra was that your the people the, the colleagues the staff are there to deliver the magic to the people that are visiting the park and by and large all the people visiting, visiting the park are there to have a great time themselves with all their families i was on a stall that basically gave away teddies yeah and, and i gave away far too many teddies to people that didn't <laughs> win just because i like them or we we talk about something I, i'm a big ub40 fan right and i remember a guy turned up with ub40 tattooed on his knuckles one day he left with a raft of teddies. <laughs> gave <him loads>. yeah. <laughs> You're another winner. Uh, yeah, well done. So yeah, I did that. Um, but that that taught me a lot actually about you know customer 
experience. I didn't know it at the time, but customer experience mm. and, uh, mm. and service delivery, because that's all they'd keep saying to you, deliver the magic, deliver the magic. It wasn't meant to be give Teddy's away for free because we were trying to make money as well, but um, it was a great job. So, and it was the summer. That, that was awesome. Strangely then, Hot Point rang me and asked me back because the people that I did work with knew There's I was a new bus route. good at it. <laughs> well, yeah. No, it wasn't. They were happy for me to, 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 to be late and do it, then do a great job. It's sort of a Halia name was. She, she knew that actually, all right, that was, a, that, was a, that was a problem, but there was more to it than just that. So, so I actually ended up going back. Um, I was then redundant from there, and I went to work in, a, in an insurance contact centre, so early 20s. So That's that was, quite a lot to happen in those kind of that formative years. first yeah. few years of um yeah that's like of, a three-year period that yeah it's changed quite a bit that that's a lot to happen and i think i know and we'll get onto this i know but i know you being team centric as well that that kind of empowerment at um alton towers trusting people to say we we we're a company to make memories deliver magic but actually it's going to be you that's doing it I, I can see that that is a thread that's going to be throughout your kind of um, your career because you're very much team centric person leader. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I do think that all Tower stuff stayed with me. And uh, and, I, and when I was head of HR, which I, I will call to it, I, I, we ran a program called Deliver the Magic. I actually called it that for our contact right. centre people. Um, that won an award as well, actually, at the time. But um, yeah, that stayed with me. I said to my wife, actually, when I retire, I want to go back and work at Alden Towers. I'm going to go be a litter picker there or something. Love um, that. Yeah. I love it. Okay, I'm going to go do it again. Um, so you, you went to insurance after that then, after Hot yeah, Point? Yeah, that, that's again. when insurance started, yeah. So I went to work for um, a local insurance company, Alliance Auto Direct, which was bought for a pound by HSBC within a couple of weeks of me arriving. Um, and HSBC, to be fair, really invested in, transformed what was... Um, it was an organisation that was obviously starting to struggle. Um, they'd got lots of high street shops trying to sell car insurance, and that was in, in decline already at that stage. This is like late, late, late sort of 90s, uh, early 2000s, perhaps. And uh, they were centralising into contact centres, closing the branch network, bringing them into contact centres. And they built a purpose, HSBC in the end built a purpose-built contact centre here in Stoke-on-Trent near to the Stoke City Football Stadium. 500-seat contact centre, give or take, big open plan space. Um, and as I say, really invested in it. What were they, you doing uh, there? Uh, I was on the phones in customer service. I, I did customer service. I did sales. Um, shortly afterwards, though, there was a team leader vacancy, and this happened to me a lot in my career. I'd just be, I'd just be doing there, sitting there, doing my job, not, 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 not making any fuss with anybody, really, getting along with people as best as I possibly could. Um, and the team leader vacancy, and people would point to me and go, Oh, Dave would be brilliant at that. Why don't you go for it? And I'd go, me? <laughs> I'd, I'd, <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll give it a shot if you want me to give it a go. And I just, I've always done that. Just tried stuff. Like, like it. It. there's that Richard Branson quote, isn't it? Just say yes, then figure out how to do it later. Yeah. I'm not quite that um, uh, blasé about it. I've generally tried to say yes to stuff and just take opportunities. So I was the team leader, did that in service and sales as well. Um, Time then moves on. I, I helped to do recruitment for the contact centres with the HR team. Loved that. Uh, meet, again, meeting people, showing them around the place, asking the questions, getting to know people, choose, making the decision on who would join. Um, so I applied for the recruitment officer's job and I didn't get it. They offered me the assistant head of HR job and gave the other, another candidate the recruitment job. So now I'm in human wow. resources. But isn't that a great lesson for everyone listening? Is that kind of... Um feel that it's that Bren Brown is it feel the fear and do it anyway it's that kind of uh, once you do that you become addicted I think to oh, leaving true. your comfort zone you, well you get I, I always say to people you get you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable and, yeah. and, and, and I used to really worry about what people thought of me like I try to read people's minds about what they're thinking about me and, and that happened for years and years um and then you, obviously you get a bit, you get a bit more confident. You start to realise, like you said, I can't remember if we were recording or not at the time. You sort of, you know, people are really just people. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's 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 really it. You don't isn't need to worry. It, it, isn't it funny though? It's kind of, and we were talking about this quite a lot before hitting record. That um, one of the things about doing the podcast is to 
you come on and talk about your career and it's to help people understand when they look at people and they look at their titles and maybe they look at them winning awards and doing great things that it's just something that they've done effortlessly it's because of who they are or something that you perceive about them the reality is very different and we are all the same we are all fallible we've all made mistakes um we've all had i mean look at your the start of your early career you know let go redundant did a different thing applied for different things when you maybe didn't even think you should go for it what you know the um how long did that feeling last of kind of uh worrying about what other people might think because i think that everyone can kind of relate to that a oh, long time long time <clears throat> 10 years 15 maybe from that point that we've got to there long time i uh, yeah i i used to um cuz i'm actually quite an introvert I think I'm now more an ambivert. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not I'm not truly introvert. I'm sort of I'm definitely sat in the middle, um, and I definitely to recharge my batteries isn't to go to a party and socialise with more people. It's to sit down and just, and take some quiet time. But mm. um, as a result of that, when I was in so six months after being the assistant head of HR, the head of HR left, and the managing di- the, the ops director and the managing director went, well, he's a good guy let's just get him to do it for a bit. And so then I was the head of HR. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I got no legal qualifications. I've got nothing. Out. And I was like, okay. And within 48 hours, I was in Lloyd's in London, chairing a meeting on Chupi because we were buying a business. Now that's one of the most complicated parts of it. Yeah. I just, and I just had to, fake, the MD said to me, we'd just fake it. Research it tonight, get an understanding. The other HR guy will be on the other side of the table. Let him do the talking. I'd nod, right? And just I'd just throw in some of the words that are associated to that bit. We just need to get this deal over the line. So we'll, we'll broadly agree what they want. We've got an HR person on the team, winner, right? So I just went and did that and it went okay. How were you feeling? Away with you it. Went, how were you feeling though when you first went in there? Oh, I must I must have been I must have been, I must have been crapping my pants. I can't really remember. <laughs> I must I must I must have been. Um can I just say at this point, choopy. Choopy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. I've been out of HR for a long time. I'm sure it's definitely still, still, still. No, I'm just thinking about you kind of randomly saying relevant <laughs> words. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's what you mean. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, protection of your rights. Yeah, uh, I agree <laughs> with that. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, so I was then suddenly the head of HR. So then the company got bought and a real HR director turned up. The best thing she ever said to me was, any mistakes we make can be can be rectified. Mm. So don't worry about it. Um, and that and that just really relaxed me a little bit. I was like, mm. okay, right, let's study this. Obviously, I still want to do a good job, but what Lynn is saying is, you know, don't fret it really, because I I just thought employment law sounded sounded sort of super scary. Um, mm. It's not really actually gives you a lot of real good rules that you can that you could follow in, in a lot of respects. It's uh, yeah. It, makes it a lot more straightforward there's a lot of precedent a lot of case law you can follow you know people have been there and done it so um but yeah i felt um yeah 10 years probably where i was really sort of imposter syndrome anxious because uh, i was introvert i'd always be the last to speak and the the managers my managers would say you need to, need to talk more get your light from under the bushel there was a quote in one of my reviews once um, you've got loads of amazing things to say and a great contribution to make, make more contribution. As a result of that, I sat there thinking, right, what do, when do I speak? I need to speak faster. I need to say more. And I'm thinking more about trying to say something than actually something quality to say. But once I got over that anxiety, actually, I'm just really relaxed with the fact that I, I might not be the most, the biggest contributor to every meeting I go to. Some I will be. If I'm leading the meeting, then, uh, then that's a different story. But if you're in a big forum, I will probably contribute, well, let's say the least, but I, I will think to speak, not speak to think, which I think mm. is uh, you know just a, just a personality trait, isn't it? And if, if, if I join a company new, which I've done very often, but certainly had new bosses over times and worked a lot in partnerships where you'll meet new people and trying to convince them of your abilities for their own confidence sake and so on and so forth, um, might take some time for me to get to know them, but it doesn't take long before they go actually, we've seen it working now this is good 
And the awards were sort of some validation of that. That's why me and the team I was with at the time liked to enter awards. It gave us an external benchmark. It gave us validation. And it gave us an opportunity to celebrate with all the people that had contributed to your, to, to your team point. I used yeah, to carry very fruit, true. I used to carry fruit pastels around with me in my pocket. And when I, found, when I felt that anxiety coming, I'd pop a fruit pastel in. That, wow. was, that was my coping mechanism. And I'd, I'd eat the fruit pastel and it'd be a sugar rush. It would bring me back. Um, I don't need to do all that sort of stuff anymore. But. That's great. I mean, I, I really, I really resonate with that. I think naturally, I was, um, I was a kind of extrovert with my teams. I'd say, um, I would me- clown around and sometimes use that to make my point. But then in in meetings where it was either peers and seniors, um, I would become intimidated and I think for me it was more thinking my ideas were relatively simple and about letting the teams know what we were doing but not flowering it up and but I would build up barriers to not speak to say no this you're going to sound stupid you're going to sound simple and then I would leave the meeting and someone would talk to me much like you've just said and say you do you surely you had a thought on this and i would i would explain it to them outside the meeting and they'll go why didn't you say that in there because that's that makes sense yeah but it's only like you say as you go through your career and get validated get um feel like you know what you're doing or that kind of the advice you've got from lynn around it doesn't matter if you make a mistake I think once you've kind of had you freed yourself of that those shackles, yeah. then it's it's kind of easier. But that for too lot too many people takes time, you know. So hopefully things like this help people just go, just say it, do it, you'll be fine. And if you're not fine, you'll recover from whatever mistake you make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I, I think I think um, the skill of the chair is important in those situations. You know, I think in those situations as well, they just they just keep cracking on through. As I think now we've got a bit more of appreciation of uh, you know sort of personality types and ways yeah. of, ways of working for different people. There are ways that so when I'm chairing a meeting, I'm con- I, I try and be conscious of the different personalities in the room. You know, those that mm. will I know will dominate, those that I know have got great things to say but need to be invited in, and I'll invite them in gently. And if they if they haven't got a point to make then take the spotlight back off them quickly because yeah, otherwise yeah. they'll get anxious about, I didn't have a contribution and that makes it worse. So, you know, it would be, you know, anything. No, fine. That, okay. That's cool. You know, validate the fact mm. that there is nothing this on this occasion. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think, uh, but again, that's just from, because I've, I've had that perspective. Um, so that's just, that's, that's just personal. I love personal it. Work. So I've, I've taken us off on like tangents where let's get, so you're, are you, you're still head of HR, but a new uh, a HR director that's probably got qualifications has come in. Where 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 now? Oh, and yeah, well, forty. So we became a GS, purchased the company that we became, which was outright. We were a specialist outsource organisation, so we'd won partnerships with people like John Lewis um, uh, at the at the time. It was was our biggest partnership. And that's what they acquired us for, that ability to white label and work with work with partners. And we were growing in that space and getting a good reputation for it. Um, yeah, they, they bought us and they bought lots of div- different businesses. And my first meeting was down in Southampton um, with, with all the heads of HR from each of the businesses, all super bright, been doing it for a long time. I was a like, I was just a likely lad. <laughs> To be honest, and, and the MD Andy Lee rang me after the meeting to go, Dave, how did it go? Almost another. Did you get away with it again? <laughs> yeah, they fell for it. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, I think they fell for it. No, yeah. I was, but yeah, no, but they were brilliant. They were they were brilliant. I just learned so much from those people. You know, they were welcoming. They were open. They knew we were a smaller business. They got massive budgets compared to us. Um, you know. And some of the things they got to play with, like top quartile re- reward packages, and we were we were a minimum wage employer in in Stoke. Um, you know, not not to try and taint it, but it's a, yeah, it yeah. a different. It was a, yeah. Uh, uh, it was a, it was a different kettle of fish. Um, but yeah, no good. Good all the same. I mean, in the end, we integrated a lot of businesses. And I was one of the last standing 
heads of HR, to be to be fair. Um, but I just I I was lucky. I had great great leaders. A lot of, all my best bosses that have uh, really helped to develop me have all been uh, female. You know, in terms of like the the diversity piece of. Uh, yeah. I, I always I always like to tell people that the, the HR director Lynn was brilliant. Um, Caroline King was director of sales and service at GS. She steered the ship on the awards we all talk about. Absolutely, you know, just first class. My current boss Karen Hogg is uh, very very similar. I've, I've been fortunate in that in that respect. Yeah, very um, same actually, and it's kind of again another reason why I think we're both massive advocates of our industry I've either worked for or had peers where I've been in the minority as a as a man um and it's it's strange when you hear of other industries where it's not like that and I think that's where I've certainly had to do a lot of learning around being conscious of are women being interrupted more are they speaking as much in meetings because my experience certainly in those first management positions and maybe the first uh, step into senior management, I was in a minority as a, as a man. Um, and some of the most inspirational leaders I've worked for have been, have been women. And I think it's, it's a, it's, it is a great thing for our industry. Long may it kind of continue, not without being complacent, but mm. it's great, isn't it? Oh yeah, it really is. Yeah. No, you're right. Actually, I, I was in the minority for a long time. I don't really actually put that stamp on it. But yeah, in, in HR, I mean, typically, you know, lots yeah. of uh, it was. It was uh, all you know, lots of the trainers were were ladies, and um, and the HR people. Yeah, there's not there weren't, weren't many. I was I, yeah, generally, I was the I was the only man for a long time. Then we got we got a head of reward and a, and, a, and another HR director actually was a, yeah. There's just three of us. All the rest. Were, and then where women. from? Did you stay in HR? Where did you go from from there? Yeah, so, yeah, I did HR for about ten years. Yeah, so I was head of HR and development for ten years. Brilliant job. I, and I had uh, I, I had responsibility for everything from recruitment uh, to talent management um, through to um, all the learning and development. So from onboarding to management development, all the employee engagement. That was brilliant. brilliant. We'd put on big award ceremonies, business conferences, all the internal comms for our people fell into that space. Um, so volume recruitment, specialist recruitment, payroll even, employment law, employee engagement, the whole lot was ace. Uh, and I loved it. And my, job, my next job was going to be HR director. That was where my career path was going until one day when I sat in a boardroom and we got a new, another new MD who said, uh, right, we've lost a contract. And the reason we've lost it is because our bonus scheme was quite aggressive at the contact centre. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, 50 plus percent of it was variable pay against the base. And we'd lost the contract on that basis because in the banking industry, bonuses were becoming tainted. So mm. amongst other reasons, that was one of the pieces of feedback we got. The MD said, I want to try removing bonuses in the contact centre. And I was charged with uh, coming up with the plan. And I went away and I came up with a plan and I presented it back a month, a month later in the boardroom and everyone was around the table nodding, going, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, brilliant, Dave. Okay, that sounds like a sensible plan. It was a very blue plan. You know, if you get insights, I'd yeah. mapped it out. And uh, everyone's nodding and the MD waited till the very end. It was on the spider phone in the middle, right? So he probably, I don't know whether he could realise everyone was agreeing. Verbally they were, couldn't see him yeah. nodding. He went, we're not doing that. That's not happening. That won't work. You've not considered this, 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 and this. And all the things he was talking about was what I now know are the related systems, the things that are connected to bonus schemes that didn't appear in the paper anywhere. So the impact on quality, mm. uh, the impact on quality, the impact on performance management. I'd focused on the the, the, the money aspect and making sure nobody was worse off. Yeah. Uh, but not many of the other related systems. And he gave me a book the next time I saw him. It was Freedom from Command and Control by John Seddon. And I went away and read that book and it changed the way I thought about everything. Have you ever read that? Have you, have you read that? No, I haven't. You know Just say, yeah. that, say that again. Freedom from... Command and Control. Yeah. John Seddon. Okay, yeah. I'm going to get that today. <laughs> uh, fair enough. It's, it's, it's a brilliant book. It's, I mean, John Seddon is... Uh, he is... Uh, um, what's the word? He's, he's evangelical about his method. Now, I, I've taken lots of his method, but 
uh, I, but but it made it appropriate for the organisations I've worked for and pulled in other methodologies. Um, uh, so he can be very black and white. So he's a bit, he can be a bit marmite, you know. Uh, some people really, really subscribe to the vanguard method and systems thinking there's no other way, um, and some are, are are at different uh, places on that sort of scale. I, why did it have it. such? Why did it have such an impact? What what is it about it then? Well, I, I realised that actually much of what I'd been doing in human resources for ten years was wrong, but it was the way. So command and control is all the you've talked about it in your podcast with lots of people, all the measures we've got in contact centers, all the oppression that that creates. And mm. it's all productivity and, and do, do what you're told, not what you think process mm. of, of mm. managing people, which is, you know, is very, very popular in this part of the world. Um, that's command and control, like, uh, you know, hit the target. Whereas the opposite of that is, is, is systems thinking, purpose-driven organisations and cultures that give intent, really, to help people think and solve the problem for themselves, uh, rather than just go against a metric that often they can't actually control. Mm. Um, and then that sort of leads into a cycle of, I can't control it, I'm now missing it, uh, apathy, soul-destroying, contact centres equals uh, absence attrition, worse productivity and stuff so it sort of brings to life i mean you're either subscribing to it or you're not but it brings to life that that can be a bit of a doom loop if you carry on with the command and control you think you've got control mm. but have you really mm. versus take the shackles off trust people give them auto purpose autonomy create mastery in the long run if you believe the methodology your results will be much more profound and that is what we found so I was asked to remove the bonuses. I came up with a new plan as a result. We tested it in the John Lewis area because that's very much uh, sort of in line with their culture as well. I know the, the annual partners uh, bonus piece, but they're very much, aren't they, about you know customers mm. first, never knowing yeah. who's sold, all that cultural piece. Was We're partners, yeah. Yeah, all that sort mm. of stuff. So it was a good fit. So they were very supportive of it, and we did it. And, um, yeah, sale, sales went up, costs went down. Uh, no one left for 12 months. Wow. People would say to us, oh, it's changed my life. You know, they, they literally, they were the words they used. And that, like, I've been in HR with this unknown purpose of, I'm going to help build a brilliant business that gives long-term employment for the people of Stoke-on-Trent. We're going to fill this contact center with people and they can come and work here. We're going to pay them well. We're going to create a great atmosphere. But the great atmosphere is hygiene factors, isn't it? Like, we can all run yeah. quizzes and all that yeah. sort of stuff and have a party. Here's and some sweets. Yeah. Yeah. All that sort of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. You need that. Yeah. 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 But that's, that is, you can replicate it. Mm. Like the contact center next door can replicate that. Mm. Um, Mm. So how do you, how do you make it? And I think it's purpose. You have to find out what the purpose is. And people who are joining contact centers like I did from Alton Towers, because I want to serve customers. And again, I didn't understand the psychology of serving people makes you feel good. Mm. You know, I want to help people to serve people. So they join to do a service job um, and then you tell them to follow a script. Don't yeah. serve people, just read this. Like don't, don't, don't do don't don't do anything else. Follow the rules. Follow the rules and win a prize. Mm. That's what it is. You know, mm. if you follow the rules, you win a prize. Um, well, you better be sure that those rules and that script are the best way to deliver customer experience. Otherwise, because everyone's following it, you know, otherwise you're a bit you're, you're scuppered and you know, how are you going to improve? How are you going to grow? How are you going to find the, how are you going to find the failure and the waste in those processes? You're probably not because you're blindly following this strict process. And how are you? I mean, we've all been there. I can remember as a team leader um, starting people on the, on the performance path because they'd accumulated or they'd done it so many times um, too long in comfort breaks or too late logging back on by minutes how can how can somebody deliver great customer experience and be present for a customer or like you say come up with ideas for process improvement if what they're thinking about is right i've got three more minutes <laughs> you know uh, yeah it's uh, that kind of um i remember a conversation i had with a, with a manager once that said look we can't stop telling people about taking too long on comfort breaks because they keep going to the toilet and taking too long. And I was like, 
okay, so you're going to put a target on this 10 minutes then, right? And that'll work, will it? And that's what they believe would work, uh, command and control. And, I, and we just sat down and had a frank conversation and said, look, I think you're trying to solve the wrong problem. If your people are trying to escape the job to spend more time in those toilets, which we know are a... Modern markets require modern investment approaches. And with Yield Street, that's what you'll get. Explore wealth-growing investments in art, real estate, venture capital, and more, with minimums starting at just $500 and targeting annual yields of up to 18%. Discover the difference a diverse portfolio makes and trade volatility for stability with YieldStreet. Visit YieldStreet.com to get started. That's YieldStreet.com. Not a nice place. Um, yeah. Then there's a bigger problem, isn't there? Why do yeah. they want to go and escape uh, over there? For what's going on over here we need to fix what's going on over here not just because you, you need to fix the input not the output mm. um and uh, and basically the way i've always approached changes is to is the, there's a model i follow but basically to trial it you know i like to i like to not mm. just have this rational conversation where my opinion is better than yours my process is better than yours do what i tell you because that's also command and control i'm not going to do that i'd like to test it let me let's prove the theory why don't we just why don't we just have one team Let's get one team working in this alternative way. So let's just light a little fire. Let's see what happens. Will it burn? Will it grow? And, and invariably it does. And then when people have seen it with their own eyes, yeah. that's when you get the aha moments. That's when you get the buy-in. You don't have to sell it to anybody. And then when that part of the contact centre suddenly buzzing, what happened was all the rest of that contact centre in Stoke, which bear in mind was a 500-seat open-plan office, all these people over here are loving life. They're going to the smoking shelter with a big smile on their face. The others are going, the other guys under the bonus scheme started going, when are you taking my bonus away? <laughs> yeah, but, wow. But, but, but it was the biggest fear in the world for every, don't touch my bonus. Yeah. Don't take the bonuses away. No one will sell anything. Uh, biggest fear in the world until you prove the concept and people could see with their own eyes that um, it, 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 it was a better way. It was, for, it was for us anyway. You've hit the mark as well again about testing. There's not enough testing goes on within contact centers i mean i'm i was smiling then because we had a similar sort of thing is mine was a little bit more mine wasn't as well thought out as yours mine was a bit just i was a bit rebellious and i would just do things and it, it i think what is it remember that youtube video of a guy that just is dancing in a certain way oh, on his own, and then yeah, other the people bank. come along yeah, and dance yeah. near him yeah. and then it gets bigger and bigger it, same sort of thing in the contact center all of a sudden my little team that started small was galvanized and behaving differently and um, like we did things um, I'll give you an example that ties into I didn't even know you've, you've educated me today um, we had I wanted to talk to them about um, lateness but I didn't want to do it in terms of just hammering them with numbers um, I wanted to just explain to them what it meant for we all had cost centers so my my cost center i would try and use that creatively to um increase a, like the welfare budget and do more things for the team yeah but we worked out or it was very loose but i helped i got workforce management to help me work out that for every five minutes i think it was it equated to 50 pence and i and i just but we and i just did a presentation the huddle with the team using one of the big plasmas behind me and i just said that i'm this is not admonishment, but I just want to tell you what this what this means. <clears throat> and what happened is people started managing their peers, each other, talking about, well, let's see what we, you know, let's see what we can do to be the best, be the best team, because we understand more now. And they suddenly had pride in little victories where... Yeah. Yeah. Other teams didn't even know we were in competition with them, but we did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we yeah, were yeah. like, we're going to be the team with the lowest absence and best, uh, because then we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to talk about it. We can focus on doing things for customers and each other. Um, if I'd have known it was, if I'd have been able to theorize, talk about it as command and control, then I might have got more buy-in at a senior level quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, so it was really, yeah, it was sort of super interesting that those trials were. And it, the John Lewis one was just so, so, I mean, it was about 100 FT that trial. So that was, that was a big one, actually. Yeah. Uh, in Atlanta, we, we, we've, we've, we've been trying to do similar things. Uh, we, we probably do have about 100 FTE in similar trials now across our, wow. different, across our different businesses. I mean, it's a different culture. It's different. It's a different, this is a different recipe. You know, it's got different people in it. It's got different challenges. It's in a, it's in a different place. It's a different moment in time. Um, you know, people are working from home and all sorts of things that have changed since this story I'm telling you now. But effectively, we grew that model and test and learned across all. I think we had five contact centers at the time with about three and a half thousand FTE in them. And by the right. end of the by the end of the two year sort of program, all the bonuses had gone. All the bonuses had gone. All the top frontline targets had gone. Team leaders' roles were redesigned completely. That's an important. Um, part of uh, the success criteria and um all frontline qa had gone all scripts had gone um wow what's um, tell me about the team leaders then because they're so important in our industry what what happened there yeah we i mean people call it a day in the life of but we did it, it in john seddon's book he'll talk about um what is value work and what is waste work and uh, essentially we we studied team leaders um, and value work is defined as uh, activity that is either focused on serving customers or improving things for customers. That's it. Everything else is waste. So we categorized in those uh, categories and found that team leaders typically only spent 30% of their time in value work, if you accept that uh, description or definition. Uh, so the rest is waste. That's then categorized in three pots. Uh, waste one is if I stop this stuff now, nobody will notice because it's, it's all the stuff we keep giving people that they carry on doing. Uh, the report I write, the da da da, dish it out to folk. Nah, cheers. Uh, one. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's get, let's get number two uh, is stuff that um, if I stopped, people would notice, but we're not sure we need it anymore. And number three is uh, typically in my world, it's like regulatory stuff, like risk management and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've agreed that we must do this. And with category one, obviously you want to stop it. With category two, you want to figure out should you stop it or should you move it to category three? And category three is then do it as efficiently as you possibly can. And, and what happens is if you just do categories one and two, um, even just that, gave team leaders like three or four days back massive wow. amounts massive amounts of time so you flip it to get to like 70 80 percent value work what's happening then is they've got lots of capacity to go and spend it you know, this is not this is not new to anyone in the contact center world with your team in the work doing the call together not sat two yards behind the agent watching what he's doing you serve the customer together we'd even plug two headsets in have two people talking to the customer like we wow. are here to we are here to serve you today they will do it together and they're using the continuous improvement methodologies we developed. So is this call of value demand? Do we want it? Does the customer want to be making it? Or is it a failure demand created by a failure to do something, something going wrong or something not working the way we thought it would work? Like we gave this information in your uh, new business documents, but six months later, you can't find it. So that's not really working the way we would like it to work, is it? So how do we redesign that to eradicate the failure demand? Once you start eradicating failure demand, you create even more capacity because you don't have to worry about AHTs because you've, you've taken out 30% of your call volume. Now you can take longer on the value calls. We've developed a model for handling value brilliantly. So that's meant sales go up. Costs go down because there's less calls. It's less attrition, there's less absent. Uh, people are more engaged. And, and as I say, it's that team leader piece, really, that was a big conduit to that because they didn't need the reports anymore to tell them how people were doing because they were there 80% of the time watching what people were doing. They see it with their own eyes to the previous point. And you, and you just don't, you don't need the QA because I'm with you. I know, and I'll fix it there and then immediately at the point of sale almost, you know. Um, the second line monitors can monitor to their heart's content. Like, come monitor my team because I'm yeah. uh, I'm with them. These 12 yeah. folks are mine and we are we are on it. And I know where the problems are and I know where the problems aren't. And then you start prioritizing your time um and you just well just grows into a team that are you know delivering together for a cause that is not their own in in energies it was making insurance easy that's what we're here to do let's make insurance easy for our customers and that's how we that's how we think about time like is what you're doing now making insurance easy 
Yes or no? No. Do, what, 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 you know, think about that then. You, you're part of the team. You're an adult. You're trusted to be here. If the answer is no, do something about it. Yeah. Get back to making insurance easy if that's what you're supposed to be doing at that point in time. And then it's just the same for processes. Is this process easy for customers or not? And uh, if it's not, well, how do we how do we make it easy then? That was our simple mantra, really. I love that. And, for culture and process. I love it. Because once you've got that purpose, this is like... Um... Will it make the boat go faster? Have you read yeah. that book? Uh, well, so I've that, not read it. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Because so, yeah. that's that's the same thing. That's how it they is. went from being eighth at one Olympics. It was a British rowing yeah. team, eighth that's in right. one Olympics to winning gold in the next was to cut through all the unnecessary. It's like you're talking about waste one, right? To cut through all the unnecessary nonsense that surrounds any body of work they would be able to ask themselves a question, will it make our boat go faster? Yeah. And if the answer was no, well, stop talking about it or we're not doing it or it's not important. If the answer was yes, right, everybody, we need to focus on this. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, I can I just imagine, I was hanging on your every word then, I can just imagine what that um, what your centre was like. Yeah, I mean, I the it was buzzing. <sighs> Well, we we had lots. We, we one of the one of the we won the Northwest Contact Centre of the Year for the Stoke operation, and we won Southwest Contact Centre of the Year for our Bournemouth operation. The judge Jane Thomas, who runs the, yeah. the those ones, you know, if you know Jane, she she uh, runs both of those, but they're separate. Um, but the judges came. Uh, she came to both. So the judges in the South were different. The judges in the North were different, and both of them wanted us to win. But Jane was the constant. The best compliment we had was uh, that we'd managed to create the culture we were deaf we were after in two very different locations, three hundred yeah. miles apart, three hundred miles apart. You know, and she could see the consistency of what we were doing, and that's because we had by then we had centralised leadership of the contact centres. The sales and service team was led by Caroline King. She had a team of heads of, and we ran the sales and service contact centres. And that, that, that sort of seven or eight of us were aligned, got got over time aligned to that, um, you know, strategy of embedding, making everything about creating the conditions for people to make insurance easy. Um, and that's what we do. We set we set about picking off all the performance management, the QA, all the things that team leaders told us got in the way. Um, yeah. And, and it did. It worked, it, worked, uh, it worked superbly well. Yeah. It's probably five years, though. You know, it's not, a, it's not an overnight yeah. uh, thing. It took us a long time. And then by 2019, we, were, we knew we got a good story and the commercial results were coming through. You know, first contact resolution was up in the 80%. Our NPS across all value journeys was like mid to high 60s true empty NPS as well. No tricks in the questions because we wanted the bad news. Like we had this philosophy of our voice of the customer program is going to tell us the bad news. It's not to get an NPS to promote on our marketing website. It's to find out where things are going wrong. So we want the bad news um, and then we're going to tackle it. And that's what we did. NPS, net ease was a key measure for us because obviously making sure it's easy. That was skyrocketing. Um, and we benchmarked it as well, you know, against, uh, against uh, in, in insurance and cost bases and complaints per policies enforced, you know, the things that the FCA holders accountable for. And we were just, we were just moving to market leading on everything. As a result of that, we actually then launched a GS direct to the market for the first time ever in the UK, which is a GS easy as. So if you try and get car insurance from a GS now, they'll, that's their, that's their thing. Easy as it's because wow. under the hood, under the hood that we, they know their operation is, uh, is, is really, really good. Really? Yeah, I mean, you guys, when you came in um, and, and presented, it was one of those kind of wow moments that you had it all absolutely firing, but you could tell that there'd been a hell of a lot of work to to get to that point. What a great story. How would yeah. you, um, what would you say to people listening who, obviously they can contact you, but what would you say to people listening about how how do you get people and brands working together in this kind of more profound profound way um well i, I mean not to repeat myself but i think i do think purpose is the key i do think purpose is the key um 
the, the problem I've got with purpose these days is making insurance easy as we set it five years ago. Ease has become a hygiene factor for like all brands, hasn't it? Like you've got to make it easy and simple for customers to interact with you. We're all at it, aren't we? You know, if it doesn't work within a few seconds, you give up, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not uh, getting annoyed. Yeah, you do, you do, you do, don't you? Whatever it is. And uh, so I think that's, yeah, finding but finding finding your per, finding the purpose is the one. Finding the purpose is the one. Um, and, and making sure it's easy work because we were a partnership business to begin with we bought lots of other businesses um, we've got lots of businesses and brands in um, in Atlanta uh, but we've just gone through the exercise of harmonising our uh, purpose and values um, in Atlanta and so we, we were at the very beginning of that journey and already you can see people are, are, are understanding it they feel like they're a bit part of a bigger organisation they're referring to what we call, what we now call ensuring you and yours your way, the pursuit of excellence, and keep it simple uh, is the customer bit of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a start. There's a few other principles under that, but keep it simple is the customer one, which obviously is quite similar to uh, making sure it's easy. That is some of my influence, but we did go through the exercise of engaging all of our people in contributing towards what they thought was the right purpose for customers. And I think for today, keep it simple is, is the right one for us. Um, we've added, we listen to our customers to keep it simple because we're just at the very start of launching what I'd, what I'd call a, a, a real proper voice for the customer program to get the right metrics and data that we need to give us our baseline to tell us we're really where we are today. And then we can, and we can move on from there. I love, I love that. I love just the idea of, because I think MPS is um, certainly there's a lot of people questioning is this just kind of vanity metrics or um i love the fact that so this was in the previous place but you're doing this now at atlanta right just kind of we need to know where we're not delivering for our customers and these are the methods by which we can do it that i think that that for me using customer satisfaction metrics whatever they are the right way yeah i think 100 percent. yeah when I arrived at Atlanta, we got five different voice of the customer programs with different providers asking different questions, only really asking the customers in the journeys where it was going to be good news. Mm. So people that had just bought a policy from us. So they're happy with the price, happy with the product. We'd survey them. We get How did we do? Oh, we did well. For, for, we should, shouldn't we? You'll be worried yeah. if you weren't doing well on those ones. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, so that was good. And then... Um, yeah, what we've done is we, we have set our stall out to say, look, the voice of the customer program needs to be consistent across our brands, across our businesses. Um, we've, we've selected one provider to help us do that. Um, the question set and methodology is by and large the same. And we're going to ask all of the customers in the right places where, you know, be prepared for the bad news. Mm. Uh, but the bad news is the good news. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for, for improvement purposes. Um, well, it's like it's it's like sport, um, and I've got to be careful using sporting analogies. But um, we use this with a girls' team that I coach. You either win or you learn. Um, you, you know do, that. I've heard you say that before. Yeah. Yeah, you win yeah. or you, you win or you learn. Sometimes the lessons are harder when you've lost seven too, but yeah. Um, yeah. you learn a lot. You learn more for sure, and it's the, the same other, with customer feedback. Yeah, the other big one, though, the other big lever we pulled was understanding the difference between value demand and failure demand in contact centre demand, whether that be voice or web chat or emails, whatever. You know, is it a value demand and is it a failure demand? And we test that against the purpose as well. Um, but because a lot of people think uh, or did think that a value demand, that, sorry, a failure demand was a value demand. For example, I've done a quote on your website and I'd like to buy it, please. So we take the call. We double check the information, we book, the pot, we book it on, so we sell it, and then we pay that guy a bonus. What I got them to do was say, so this is five years ago, but why did that customer not complete the journey they started? So ask that customer what stopped them from, hey, we're no problem saving this and doing this for you now, but let's get some more insight. Why did you not do it? And people would start to say to us, well, I didn't understand that question, or on one brand, I couldn't find the buy button. Right, so we asked more customers, and lots of people started to say, "I couldn't find the buy button. Couldn't find the buy button." So we moved the buy button up. And those calls disappeared. People, because and the, and the yeah. straight through rate increased. Yeah. We, we weren't utilizing the the people were following a process, a script. 
Mm. We educated them in value demand and failure demand, and they started to give us insight. So you can do it through manually collecting the reason why customers called on an Excel spreadsheet. I've done that before. And then masses of hundreds of post-it notes are going up on the wall, categorizing these value demand and failure demand themes. Or things like, um, you know, uh, speech analytics these days yeah. can, can often give you that, uh, that insight. But that, that, is, that is telling. I mean, I've been to brands where there's 70% failure demand. Typically, it's about 40 when you start, in my experience. And I've done this across lots of partnerships and lots of contact centres, and it's all got failure demand in it. Um, That's because people are just stuck in the activity without being, without being able to kind of question, and you've given them the framework to do that now. Well, well yeah, so they're stuck in the activity and uh, they're measuring the wrong thing. So they're measuring the number of calls I got, the number of calls I've answered, and how quickly I answered them. Uh, that, that's a decent measure, but what's the mix of those calls is the next layer. How many of those were calls we wanted? How many calls we did, we didn't want? You've got two options. You could either focus on people to go faster or recruit more people at increased cost to improve the answer rate. It's not where it needs to be or design out the calls. So take the failure demand out and take the failure demand out it heals lots of your problems. Customer satisfaction goes up. People aren't dealing with the complaints. So employee engagement goes up. Uh, cost goes down. Uh, so it's just like, right. uh, simple, it's, it's, it sounds simple. It is a bit harder to do in practice because then you need all the mechanisms for making change, which can become a, a bit, bit overcomplicated as well, but that's probably another story. Well, I, it, I already feel like we're going to be doing uh, another couple of these because we've kind of just stayed on your um, your career, but it's been absolutely fascinating. Where... Um, where does this? Where do you think the future is? Where, when you look at um, where you are now, but also in a, wide, a wider sense, the contact center industry. Given what we've gone through over the last couple of years, um, what do we still have to do? And where do you think is where do you think we're going? Um, well, where do I think we're going? Is is the more difficult of the two questions? I think what what we have to do is, and I'm biased, you know, I think we're going to be less uh, location specific, aren't we, in the contact centre industry? I think that like recruitment pool is just widening. I don't think it's quite got there yet, has it? There's, there's, no. There are some people that are doing it really well, like, and you can tap into people like Sensei, can't you, if you want a good sort of homeworking network. But I do think that people will start to go, hold on a minute, so I'm in Stoke and we're struggling for a recruitment pool here. You know, what about Leeds or Newcastle or the other places that have got, we know have got great contact centre people in reputation? Yes. And they could work for us, yeah, because we'll do it like this. Yeah, um, and <laughs> yeah. I, I do think that that will grow and grow and grow, and grow even more than it has over. The, now we've sort of got over the trust of people being able to do this from home, and all mm. the customer problems that we perhaps thought around taking payments have all been overcome now, haven't they? You know, because they were all restrictions in the past. Uh, you know, all, all gone, haven't they? I think technology is going to keep taking us forward. Customer-wise, mm. it's, it's going to be more about digital tech, self-service still. And then that only leaves voice demand to be around, and Martin and Wilson are like this, uh, emotive, complex demands. And that means we're going to have a skill gap. Because if people are just following a process of a script and they don't have to think, that's all right for frequent, predictable yeah. demands. When things are going wrong and we need some empathy um, and we need to have a more personable conversation, that, that is another. And you need time to be able to have that conversation, you know, whether it be vulnerable customers or whatever is arising. That's a different skill. And I, I don't think we have that en masse. I think Martin said on your podcast, you can spot the guy who's got great empathy over there in the corner. He always does really well on those calls and everyone else is just smashing through. Them. You know, We've got more of the people that are smashing through them than the guy in the corner that's uh, delivered a great empathetic service. And we actually want him to go a bit faster at the moment because we've still got a lot of failure demand, but we need to answer them all. So all these things are all linked, aren't they? That's the related yeah. system. So Ant was telling me about, you haven't, you haven't taken into account the entire system. You've just looked at bonuses and that's just one component. And when you play Jenga, take a part out, it could collapse. If yeah. Whenever you take something out, you've got to put something else back in. It's not just a case of just changing everything. Um, you've got to consider the relate all the related impacts. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think em empathy in customer experience, customer service is probably going to dial up for voice people and contact centers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely spot on. And to your point, um, 
I think we need to be thinking about how we can ensure that that's a skill that is the the that the many are trained to have or that we facilitate or te tease out of people yeah because at the moment like you say this is the they're the kind of in a concrete landscape they're the one bit of greenery that you see that's managed to to kind of stick out how do you you know are if the processes and everything are about if you if your main focus is productivity and that's how you you measure success and now and again there's there's somebody just I, although saying that there's a lot of great activity out there around um i've been really like pleased to see um companies reaching out to specialized charity providers around dealing with you know vul very specific vulnerable customers and um because charities want to come in and say because it's going to make life better for the people that then invariably use the charity and that's been great that's been great to see really creative kind of um yeah that is uh that is very true because there has been the pandemic obviously has propelled a lot of that as well hasn't it not not yeah not on its own and when obviously we are talking very generally you, you can i can also think some great examples of where uh, there is awesome empathetic service delivered as standard now in in, in places so we're, we're talking generally aren't we as uh, you know contact centers on large I, I just think you know self-service will continue to go up so frequent predictable demands that anyone can do ought to be able to you, if you want to self-serve yourself you should be able to self-serve yourself these days but if you need to speak to somebody because all the money out of your bank account just suddenly disappeared you probably don't want to self-serve yourself you probably want to quickly speak to somebody who can help yeah and that, and, you know what i mean that's, that's it. yeah i think you, you dave you've been fascinating and we definitely have to, i i get criticized about this but because i say it to the, but i really really have to, we've just got we'll stop recording in a sec but we'll diarize up um another session because we haven't even really scratched the surface i think of what um everything you bring but it's been it's been fascinating what what would you say to um people that are listening that are maybe you know i think your your career um and how eloquently you speak about the things that are important you're a multiple award winner so you're a real role model but what would you say to that kind of um introvert that might be sat there in the contact center right now how what what tools would you suggest people use or what advice would you give i saw a uh, poster like uh, in those early years that had a um it was one of those cheesy posters like one of them was a i remember it really well one of them was a um was a picture of a snowflake and it said uh Imagine what we could do if we stick together was one, right? I remember that one. But the one that really stuck with me was another one. I can't, and the phrase was, autograph your work with quality, right? And that's the one that stuck with me. So whenever I've done any piece of work from that point on 25 years ago, I've always tried to make it the best piece of work that I possibly can do in the constraints. So I wouldn't miss a deadline for it, but you know, I'd always give everything 100%. So as a result, I just back myself really. You know, I think it's, you know, it's just do it, trust yourself, learn. I, I spent like years where between eight and nine every day, I'd, I'd, I'd read something or watch a TED talk or listen to a podcast, just constantly learning. It was like that imposter syndrome was actually a positive for me because I was so scared about people catching me out. I actually needed to know more. So I probably yeah. kept going past the point of, need you know yeah. and as a result of that ended up further forward than perhaps i i really needed to be and i just kept going i, I just kept going that sounds like really rubbish advice. no more honestly more more power to you it, dave it's been an absolute um pleasure and i'm sure there's going to be in the same way that you said you've reached out to people that have come on um people i know you're open to people reaching out to you um getting in contact with you um yeah, definitely come back on and we can go through some of the other things that we've been talking about um, off off record, including um, what's the name of that cake from Stoke? You're very passionate oh, about cake. Stoke, aren't oh, you? Oh, yeah. yeah it's a, well, yeah, it is cake. Oat cake. Yeah, an oat cake. I'm going to send you some oat cakes, some, uh, some Staffordshire oat cakes, and you could cook them with some bacon, cheese, eggs, tomatoes, beans, mushrooms. Oh, Love it. 
I'm out of that for my lunch today now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I've loved it, mate. Yeah, brilliant. So, uh, yeah, that's one of my bucket list things ticked because, as I say, from the beginning of the podcast, Wanted to a bit of support since the beginning. Wanted to come and talk to you again. So thanks, Martin. Well, I've got some. I've been designing some new merch, so I'm going to um, I'm going to send you some of that as well. See what you think. Oh, cheers, <laughs> nice one. I am on your website sometimes. It's on my Christmas list. Put on my wife's Christmas list. <laughs> get me, get me, a get our wrap t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. Okay, mate. Nice one. Take care. Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals, and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals, and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations.